TED Audio Collective. Hey, TED Talks Daily listeners, I'm Elise Hugh. Today, we have a timely and urgent conversation from our series TED Connects, Community and Hope. It's programming built around the challenges of this coronavirus pandemic. Today, Harvard professor and political theorist Danielle Allen takes questions from head of TED, Chris Anderson, about how we're going to get to the other side of this crisis. She reminds us we're facing two existential threats at the same time. One, to our health, but also to our economy. How do we balance our needs at this time? Danielle pulled together an extraordinary team of economists, business leaders, and others to work on a tech-based alternative to social distancing. I learned so much about COVID-19 in this wide-ranging conversation. The most promising part was learning solutions, which you'll come away with, too. Support comes from Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial, when the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. TED Talks Daily is brought to you by Progressive. Progressive helps you compare direct auto rates from a variety of companies so you can find a great one, even if it's not with them. Quote today at Progressive.com to find a rate that works with your budget. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Thank you, Chris. Uh, happy to be here. This is such a complex problem. Let's, let's, what I kind of want to do is just go through it step by step to see the logic of what it is that your your team are putting forward. I mean, first of all, the, the problem itself of how we get the economy going again. Just talk about a bit about what's at stake there, because sometimes this is framed as the economy. Who cares about the economy? People's lives are at stake. I mean, as an ethicist, what's at stake if we don't restart the economy somehow? Well, we have to recognize that we've actually faced two existential threats simultaneously. The first was to the public health system. If the virus had been allowed to unfold unimpeded, our public health systems would have collapsed, and that would have produced a whole legitimacy crisis for our public institutions. So, of course, we shut down. We had to do that. It was a necessary self-defense action. That has, however, um, really devastated the economy, and that is also an existential threat. We can't actually endure a closed economy over a duration of 12 to 18 months nor can we really endure a situation where we don't know whether we might have another two to three months of extensive social distancing. So we really need an integrated strategy, one that recognizes both of these existential threats and finds a way to control the disease at the same time that we can keep the economy open. We call that combination of controlling the disease while keeping the economy open, pandemic resilience. We think that's what we should be aiming for. So people who aren't moved by the notion of the economy, capitalism, whatever, think instead about the, the millions and millions of jobs that are lost, the people who are desperate to make money, and I guess the, the lives that will be lost unless we solve this problem. 
Absolutely. I mean, the economy is one of the foundational pillars for a healthy society with opportunity and with justice. You can't have a just society either if you haven't secured a just and and functioning economy that delivers well-being for people. So, and all we have to do is remember back to 2008 um, and think about the impacts on things like suicide and depression and so forth that flowed from that recession. So the economy is a public health concern in the same way that the virus is a public health concern. Okay, so talk about why this is such an intractable problem. People isolate in many countries in the world now. You're starting to see the cases flatten and in many cases decrease. It looks like whether it's happened now in your country or not, that, that will happen sooner or later. So why isn't that problem solved? We've, we've beaten the virus. Let's get back to work. That's a great question. And it really speaks to how new the experience for us is to encounter a novel virus. It just really hasn't happened to our society in a very, very long time. So we are what's called a susceptible population, meaning not any of us at the beginning of this had immunity. We were all susceptible to catching the disease. Um, for a society to be safe, it needs to have what's called herd immunity. You can achieve that through vaccination or through people getting the disease. But it takes 50 to 67% of the population to get the disease in order to achieve um, that level of protection. We don't expect a vaccine anytime in the next 12 months, possibly 18 months. So we have to recognize that that pathway is not open to us. And to get a sense of the magnitude of what it would mean to live through the disease to get to herd immunity, you know, repeat what Italy's done three or you know, more times to get to a place where you could reasonably think that there's herd immunity. And I think you can see that when you think of that picture, how destabilizing a process would be of just leaving things broadly open without disease controls. So the real trick is whether or not there's a substitute for social distancing as a method for controlling the disease. Right. So Italy has suffered at least 15,000 deaths. Some people argue that it's underreported. It might be 30,000 deaths plus there. And as they come down the curve, there'll be more to come. Multiply yeah. that by, by five or six, say, for, for the bigger population size of the U.S. And the herd immunity idea per se doesn't seem like a winning idea. I mean, it's a horrible uh, no. idea. It's a horrible idea. Exactly. And we do have alternatives. That's the important thing. We actually do have a way of controlling the disease, minimizing loss of life and reopening the economy. So that's the thing we should all be focusing on. And, and again, the initial problem is if you just let people start coming back, as soon as they gather again in reasonable numbers, the risk is that this highly infectious bug just takes off, off again. And, exactly. um, and, and, and so one scenario is that you have countries lurching from a little bit of activity here and then suddenly it explodes again and everyone has to retreat. That, that yep. does not seem attractive. No, exactly. I mean, we describe that as a freeze in place strategy for dealing this, with this. That is, you freeze and you shut down all activity and then that flattens the curve and you open up again. Then you have another peak, you have to freeze again and so forth. So you have this repeated process of freezing, which just does tremendous damage to the economy um, over time. Upfront damage is huge. But then there's never space to, to recover from it because of a great deal of uncertainty and repeated applications of economically ruinous um, social distancing. So, and I think, you know, you're really um, pointing to the features of the disease that make this situation the problem that it is. And there are really two that people should focus on. One is the degree of infectiousness. This is a highly infectious virus. And then the second really important point about the disease is that it's possible to be an asymptomatic carrier. That is, to be infectious, to carry the virus and never show any symptoms yourself. Current estimates are still imprecise, but people think that about 20% of virus carriers are asymptomatic. And that is really the thing that makes it so hard to control. People don't know they're sick, and then they become disease vectors spreading it um, everywhere they go. 
Yes, indeed. So talk a bit, Danielle, about your thinking about how we might outwit this thing. So the alternative to social distancing as a strategy for controlling the disease is really massively ramped up, massively scaled up testing combined with individual quarantine. So we are going to continue to need individual quarantine for those who are positive carriers of the virus until such a point as we have gotten a vaccine. It means that the standard quarantine that aligns with the incubation period, 14 days is often what people talk about. In a conservative picture, you might say twice the incubation period length, 28 days for an individual quarantine. And we need that quarantine for people who are symptomatic and for asymptomatic carriers of the virus. Now, the only way that you can actually run an individual quarantine as opposed to a collective quarantine regime is if you do massive testing. Um, We really need to make testing, in a sense, universally available so that we can be testing broadly across the population. So so just to play out a thought experiment, if if we had an infinite number of tests available and um, after, after the curve has flattened and cases have gone down, everyone came back to work, but everyone was tested every day, then what we think is that the tests will show up positive at the same time or possibly even ahead of the time that people are infectious, but certainly let's say at the same time, even regardless of whether they're symptomatic. And so you could, those people would immediately go, go back home and the rest of the population should be okay. We should be able to get work done. But the trouble is that that, that would mean doing whatever, 200 million like tests a day which right. is many, many orders of magnitude more than we have and could even imagine wrapping up to. So you have a proposal. This is the ingenuity. So if you were going to use a purely random testing method uh, to control the disease, you could probably actually get away with testing everybody every two or three days and bring the number down to 100 million tests a day. But even that is a magnitude um, that would take us multiple months to get to. Let's just say if we, if we wanted to try to do something like that. So the thing that you really need is smart testing. So rather than testing the population at random, what you do is you use testing um, to identify people who are positive, and then you add to that contact tracing or contact warning. And what this means is that once you know who's a positive test, you figure out who else has been exposed to that person over the previous two weeks, and they all get tested as well. So you start to identify a class of people who are higher probability of being infectious, um, and you test that group of people. So on a moderately effective contact tracing regimen, you could imagine doing 20 million tests a day. Um, On a highly effective regime of contact tracing and testing, um, you could get yourself down to the order of 5 to 10 million tests a day. And some countries in Asia seem to have put off a, a version of this strategy that uh, has, has been effective. But it requires one of two things, if I understand you right, Danielle. It requires either just this massively scaled up and potentially quite intrusive sort of manual contact tracing where you have big teams who swoop into anyone who's, who's tested positive and try to unpack their complete recent social history. Or Technology plays a role, and this is where it gets complicated because, you know, there, there are apps in some of the Asian countries like China has in Wuhan and elsewhere where it, it, it's very good at predicting whether someone may need quarantine and, it, and, and they will be required to do so. And so there are all these concerns about government control, government intrusion. So I think it's an important thing to say up front that the rates at which we would need to test uh, per capita 
are higher, much higher than Asian countries used because prevalence is much higher here. They caught it earlier. They had these tools built before the pandemic hit. And as a consequence, they're able to control it with a lower per capita rate of testing than will be the case for us. We just have to accept that fact at this point and recognize that massively scaling up is specific to our situation because we weren't ready before it hit. Okay, if we're trying to do the smart testing, trying to use tools, what can you do? So we're actually open to manual testing in the plan that we've developed. I want to just say that. And I think the society, we have a big choice to make, whether what we want is a big core of manual contact tracers who are tracing people's um, histories and figuring out who they've been in contact with and who they've been exposed to, or if we want to try to use a technological system. Places like Singapore and China have used highly centralized data systems for supporting this. And so what happens is, you know, you sort of, you carry your phone around and everybody's connected to a central data system. And then when somebody in the system has a positive test, that gets put into the app and then their phone communicates to other phones that it's been in proximity with over the previous two weeks to alert people that they too need to get a test, okay? There are, however, a lot of innovative apps under development right now that depend instead on a very privacy protective structure um, where the data lives on the individual user's phone and through a combination of an encryption and tokens, users of phones can communicate with other users of phones, but the data is not centralized. So in that regard, it becomes more of a peer-to-peer sharing, um, a sort of concept of friends warn friends that they should probably go get tested. Then you would have a central repository of test data, but the truth is we already have that because all influenza tests, for example, already roll up into CDC and human health and services databases so that they can track influenza patterns every year. So tell me if I, if I understand this right, that you would carry on your phone an app that would, when you got, say, within six feet of another human carrying that app, the phones would exchange, using Bluetooth technology, they, they exchange a kind of token that says, hi, we connected, but it's encrypted. And that is not communicated to a central server. That is on the phone. Correct. But if you, either of you, in the next week or two, test positive, your phone will be able to communicate to all the people which it's exchanged token with to say, uh-oh, um, someone who you were close to in the last two weeks has tested positive. You, you've got to isolate. And, and then exactly. The, the data, and then after, after, what, three or four weeks, the, the tokens can actually auto-delete. Exactly, that's right. Because you only need the most recent two weeks information or data about where you've been and what other phones your phone has interacted with. Um, So that's the really key thing. So one concern is that surely if your phone is able to contact these other phones, someone somewhere is ultimately going to reverse that and will have some kind of record of your, you know, who everyone who you've connected with, and that might be concerning to to some. Is that a legitimate concern? I think it is. I mean, I think when you talk to legal experts and civil liberties experts and so forth, everybody starts with the same premise. Assume failure. Assume that you'll have a data breach. Think for that and what kind of protection you want in that regard. And so when you think that way, you, of course, are trying to minimize any likelihood of that happening. So hence the privacy protective structure of phones communicating with phones, data living on the phone, not in the server, etc., And then also you would want a kind of democratic accountability feature. So, for example, um, having the Department of Health and Human Services have an auditing function to audit whoever is manning the server. But then again, you sort of presume failure that somebody's reverse engineering, the audit system fails in some fashion. What's your protection then? Um, And the answer to that would appear to be upfront legislation um, that 
this prohibits the commercialization of this COVID testing data so that anybody who in any way tried to commercialize it in any kind of way would be subject to um, legal penalties. So I think that's how you sort of build the fence up front and the expectation that somebody would find a way to crack it. And then there's a set of questions around how you get this app out there at scale, because it's only effective if, say, two thirds of the people who are working are carrying it, right? Something like that. You might have to say to people, look, we're slowly going to come back to work, industry by industry, company by company, in the deal for you to come back and break isolation, the societal deal, is that you have to be willing to to carry this up. And you could, for people who didn't want to do that, I guess you could have some protection. You can't lose your job for that. But, but I mean, can you picture society making the choice that it is reasonable to require people who want to come back to work to carry that alert technology with them? So this is the hardest question. We know we don't want an authoritarian model such as the one used in China and Singapore. So we have to figure out instead how to activate that thing, which is sort of the most important democratic resource or asset, namely solidarity. So what is it that from a solidarity perspective, it's reasonable for us to ask of each other? I'd be curious what the audience thinks about this, but I mean, is it reasonable in the the world that we're in right now for a company, let's say, to say, look, we we want to get back to work, but we want to do so and respect the safety of all our workers. That means that for you to come back to work, you need a test showing that you're you're negative, and uh, and you need to carry this this app so that we can alert people quickly if there's a problem. We won't fire you if you don't come in, but but if you want to come back to work, that's what you'll have to agree to. Well, no, I mean, you know, again, there there is precedent for this in the sense that drug testing works this way in many employment contexts, right? There are many roles where people have to do routine drug tests as a part of um, preserving their their job. That was a hotly debated issue in the 1980s. I mean, one one problem that we face when you when you think about these big systems introduced is that in the past, there's there's history where something got introduced. You know, you think of the Patriot Act that came in after 9-11. And a lot of people have a lot of problems with that act. And it gets renewed relentlessly. Here we are nearly 20 years later, and it's still with us. How do we persuade people that this is custom made for the current situation that we're in, and it's not going to be picked up and subsequently abused by companies or by government? That's an absolutely critical question. And I think um, we have a lot to learn from places like Germany, um, which are really, really strong and rigorous on privacy protections. I think for us, that's a really important place to look to um, and learn from them how they're structuring it to achieve those privacy protections. Danielle, you're, you're an ethicist, among other things, as well as a political theorist. As, as you think about how to apply ethical questions to this, is it inherent in a situation like this that there are going to be trade-offs, that there is no, quote, perfect solution? You've got two goods that are fundamentally in conflict with each other, or if you like, avoidance of two evils that are going to clash. In, in effect, I think the most important thing is that we clarify our core values. Um, and so the way we've tried to articulate that is to say we have a fundamental value in securing public health. We have a fundamental value in securing a functioning, healthy economy. We have a fundamental value in securing civil liberties and justice and constitutional democracy. And so then the question is, given that set of fundamental values, what are the policy options that actually do secure all of those things? Um, I also think it's really important to throw into the mix the fact that collective social distancing is a huge infringement on our civil liberties. We keep forgetting that. The alternative is not contact tracing versus nothing. It's contact tracing versus social distancing. 
we can't go out. We can't form associations where we get to be together in person. Churchgoers can't go to church right now. You know, political parties are having their conventions postponed. That If that's not an infringement on civil liberties, I don't know what is. So in that regard, um, at the end of the day, you know, there's a bunch of libertarians in the group that we work on. Like a lot of us come out of a very strongly sort of privacy protecting, liberty protecting point of view. And so we're not here to sacrifice those things. We're rather here to find a solution that aligns with the values that we bring into this problem. So that's how we think about the decision making. Moving so fast in real time. Talk, just talk about some of the other yeah. people who are in your in your group. Sure. So Glenn Weil, who's an economist at Microsoft, a political economist, is a really key figure. And he's really an innovative uh, mechanism design thinker who's really good at kind of figuring out how to craft incentive structures and so forth that um, help people uh, make choices in socially productive ways, um, in ways that are also freedom respecting and so forth. So um, he's really been helping us think about the design um, of the policy pathway. Um, Rajiv Sethi is another economist. Lucas Danksik is a philosopher at Harvard who has been scrutinizing the civil liberties and justice questions. I mean, that is his line of work. Those are the things he's most um, committed to, and that's what he's doing. We've reached out to a number of public health groups for regular consultations. They're not as directly part of our group in the sense of advancing a policy, but in terms of informing our epidemiological understanding, we've relied a lot on folks at the Chan um, School of Public Health at Harvard. So lawyers as well, Glenn Cohen, who directs the Petrie Flom Center for Law and Bioethics, has been a critical member. Andrew Crespo, also at Harvard Law School, Rosa Brooks, Georgetown Law School. I could go on. I'm missing key people. Political scientists. Actually, there's a great paper on solidarity by Melanie Kamet and Evan Lieberman that people should check out, too. How, if this plan got general acceptance, how, how I mean, obviously the clock is ticking, this is urgent. What, what would it look like to move this forward? Give a sense of what you think it would cost. Give a sense of who might own it. Like, what what would it take to actually activate this giant idea? All right. So it's a big price tag. So over two years, um, based on conservative estimates of what you would need, that is to say, maximal estimates for testing and things like that, it's got a price tag of five hundred billion, um, which includes both the production of the tests um, and the personnel of test administration, contact tracing, and all of that. So it's important to remember, though, that that production ramp up and the contact tracing ramp up are employment um, possibilities. So in that regard, they would counteract the negative impact on employment of the social distancing. So it's a big price tag, but it would be multi-purpose in that regard, jumping, you know, contributing to jumping up the economy as well as um, the testing program itself. It would be important that it be phased in, and phasing it in would actually give us a way of testing out um, the paradigm as we went. So for example, for a first phase of rollout, probably what you would want to do, um, ideally, though, by the end of the next month, um, would be to have a full range of testing for a combination of everybody in the healthcare uh, sector and everybody who might fill in and substitute for any healthcare workers who test positive. So in other words, your healthcare worker pool and a substitute pool, say a National Service Corps folks who can fill in for healthcare workers who test positive. If you could get those two groups, um, those two sectors, um, fully under a sort of testing and contact tracing regime, we would stabilize our public health infrastructure. And then you'd move on um, with that stabilized to other critical and essential workers, et cetera. So the bad news, Chris, is, you know, who would be the last people to be folded into this? Be you, it would be me, it'd be the people who can actually telecommute for work, okay? Because we would have the least call on social needs um, to pull us back out into the workforce. And, and that, that addresses what is definitely one of the most shocking and painful aspects of the current moment, which is, you know, for those of us in sort of 
working from home, it, it, it feels traumatic, but it's not nothing like what others are experiencing whose who's livelihood yes. depends on being out there doing, exactly. you know, doing physical work. Danielle, the, um, you know, given the price tag you're talking about on this, uh, half, a, half a trillion dollars, basically, up to. Yeah. Um, that's admittedly less than some of the multi-trillion dollar numbers that are getting thrown around. So, I mean, in the in terms of the scale of the problem, it's it's probably an appropriate number. But it sounds like it, to have any chance of doing this, this has to be a, a kind of a federal initiative at some level. Yes, so yes. We have a problem that more than half the country fundamentally doesn't trust key parts of the administration, let's say. How, how could this be framed in a way that could build trust and make it make it feel like this is the country as a whole, that there's this coalition of trusted voices who are the final decision makers on this? So, you know, we have this incredible federalist system and we need to see it as an asset. It's modularized and flexible and we need to activate that. We do need all the parts of the system working. So we do need the federal government working um, on behalf of this. We need the state governments working and municipal governments. We need Congress to fund. Congress can really help by um, directing investments, not just in the testing program itself, but in a kind of national service corps, probably flowing through state governments, through the national reserves um, in every state. For the testing program, we really do need the kind of procurement um, order to produce capacity that the Defense Department is the best example of. So in the ideal, um, a sort of testing supply board that brought in uh, leading figures who are masters of supply chain logistics um, from the private sector, working in close coordination with the federal government would be great. So we do need the White House, absolutely, as a key part of that, key driver of that. It's a time for all the parts of our government to come together and do their respective pieces. So I'm kind of in awe at the scale at which you're thinking. All right. Well, th- thank you so much, Danielle. I found this absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Like, I'm going to take, uh, I mean, this is not an ordinary idea. We don't often <laughs> have someone come and say, yeah, I've got this idea for how to spend half a trillion dollars between the US and other places around the world actually getting the economy going again. That's not usual. So uh, this has been been a gift to us today. Thank you for that. Well, thank you.